0: Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this time. Help us as we come to this uh, this topic, another component in our series on uh, marriage, family, and singleness, to consider the um, on the one hand the tremendous blessing that um, that sex is to uh, marital intimacy, and at the same time to uh, to be mindful of the fact that oftentimes. Some of the uh, most valuable gifts that you give us should be handled with sobriety and uh, even with a a measure of reverence in light of how much um, has been invested in it. Uh, So give us, especially in this time of um, societal upheaval and uh, just the the madness that surrounds issues of sexuality and gender, we ask that you would give us just a a good, healthy appreciation um, for the way that you have created Uh, humanity in uh, the sexual differences, male and female, um, the pairing of man and woman together, and um, the design that exists even in the physical act of sexual union. We ask that all that we do and say would please you, um, would reflect in some way your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for Jesus who makes all of this possible, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're talking tonight, this is session three uh, on the blessings and the boundaries of sex. And by uh, boundaries, we don't just simply mean the moral boundaries, but we mean even some of the, uh, the limits of sex uh, in the sense that sex for as good, as, what, as good a gift as it is in marriage, it's not an ultimate good. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. So there's sort of a uh, double sense Of the word boundary, there. Uh, There are ways in which sexual activity has been proscribed, meaning it's been um, put, a fence has been put around it, and it can only be rightly enjoyed in certain contexts, namely marriage. Um, But then there are other ways in which uh, it seems that the design that God has instilled into our human sexuality also says something about the limits um, that go with that. And so we're gonna touch on, we're gonna try to touch on. Um, both sides of that. More so, I think because all of us are, I'm assuming here tonight, since most of us would probably agree on the fence line that's been put in in terms of uh, sexual union being right only in the context of uh, monogamy, uh, heterosexual marriage. I'm not gonna spend um, really too much time on that aspect as much as looking at the links and the limits that exists when it comes to sexual intimacy. Let me try to work our way into the discussion for tonight by reviewing um, the some of the main points that we had in the first two sessions. We started off with session one talking about, uh, talking about marriage and we, we asked the question, why marriage? In other words, what is the purpose behind marriage? More so, than how you have a good marriage, or uh, what the tools are for, uh, for marriage, the why, the purpose behind marriage. Why did God do it this way? And although we can't necessarily exhaust, uh, exhaustively answer that, one of the things that we said, or one of the, uh, the driving point that we tried to make in answering that question, the purpose of marriage, is that when you look in the context of Genesis 2, it seems when we're giving a fair reading to the text, that one of the driving um, concerns in the text is that as an image bearer, Adam has been placed in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. In Genesis chapter 2 though, Adam is initially alone and the statement is made, it's not good for the man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. In the context then, the helper is a helper that is supposed to aid him in his task of caring for this little kingdom that God has created and placed him in. So God is the creator and as the rightful ruler over all that he makes, creates these image bearers. He sets them within his creation and says in some way I want you to reflect even my authority and my creativity and having dominion and stewardship over the creation. But in order for creation itself to be able to flourish and thrive the way that um, within the capacity that God had created for it, it apparently is tied into the effective work of man. And to make man most effective, Adam, needs a helper. He needs a partner. He needs an ally. And so Eve is brought in. And yes, there is relational good. There's the fellowship and and all of that. But we can't minimize the fact that within the initial marriage design, husband and wife are brought together for the purpose of jointly engaging in, working in this meaningful work of caring for and exhibiting or exerting dominion over God's creation. So marriage... Uh, in a very simple way, but profound way, is instituted by the Creator in the context of meaningful work. With that, last week we had talked about the fact that even though God creates marriage within the context of meaningful work, that's not to say that marriage is nothing but work or is only about work, as if, Marriage was just simply created with a utilitarian goal in mind. God has, you know, a project, he has a plan, and what's the best way to get the work accomplished? Well, I'm going to partner man and woman together because two hands, you know, make light work or some such thing. But rather, when you continue on in Genesis chapter 2, and especially in the response that Adam has in his first sight of Eve, we see sort of a spontaneous excitement, enjoyment, appreciation for this partner that God has made for him, which clearly goes beyond, I think, clearly goes beyond just the recognition that, oh, I've got someone to help me go about taking care of the garden. There's a delight. There's an enjoyment. Um, We would say even there's an attraction there to be had that comes at uh, at first sight, if you will. So, the complementary otherness. On the one hand, they're they're both the same, man and woman, they're both image bearers, both of equal value, equal weight in terms of um, their role in creation, and yet there's something distinct about them. So they are both human, but male and female. There's a, a unique difference between the two, and that otherness, even the taking out of Adam to make Eve, there is a sort of a, almost a magnetic attraction where from one comes two, but then the two desire to become one again. And so there's a way in which even um, the, the physical process that God uh, takes uh, or engages in to create the woman sets some sort of precedent for the way that they're going to be rejoined in this marital union physically even, and that's some of the things that, uh, that lead us up to tonight. And then we said last week that marital love, for all the enjoyment, relational enjoyment, the companionship, uh, marital love is a gift that infuses our work with joy and delight and promotes solidarity, this solidarity between the couple. In other words, God brings together man and woman. One of the ultimate goals that he has in mind for bringing them together is that he is going to use them to further his purposes in his kingdom, in his creation, but it is an added blessing that when God does that, he doesn't just bring together these partners, form them together in a union where they merely tolerate one another but it's a sign of his goodness and his kindness to us that he forms these partnerships and that he has created us in such a way that when these partnerships are formed, that yes, there is a joining together and there is a a serving together as these uh, priests in, uh, in God's creation as it were, but there's a way in which these partners are able to enjoy the company that they provide for one another as they go about laboring in God's kingdom and laboring in his creation. And so we likened it to, this is of course a very simple analogy, but likened it to the difference in going to work where you can't stand any of your coworkers. In one sense, you can still get the same amount of work done, but it sure is better and much more desirable to go to a place to work day in and day out where you actually do like the people that you work with. It tends to lighten the the workload, so to speak, to be able to work with people that you actually enjoy and appreciate. And in a very real sense, that has happened in the way that God brings man and woman together in marriage. The last thing, and I did did not put it up here, did not put it up in our review here, uh, but we tried to turn the corner and say, if this is the way that God has done it, where he puts us, uh, puts man and woman together to be able to serve him jointly as a, as a team, as partners uh, in his kingdom and in his creation, if he gives us the added blessing of marital love, uh, relational uh, romance, though, all those kind of good things that come with it, why then do we not see those, um, those transcendent goods being enjoyed in marriage relationships today? And the simple answer is because of sin. It's like everything else that happens in creation, everything that God creates and brings into existence is itself good because he does not do anything but create good things. But because of the entrance of sin and rebellion and the warping and the marring of creation, the human heart, um, you know, the whole tenor of this world that we're in, marriage itself now actually is in need of a rescue, So even for Christians, even for a Christian man and a Christian woman who come together as husband and wife, you have instructions given by, say, Paul in Ephesians 5 or Peter in 1 Peter 3, Paul telling husbands, love your wives as Christ led the church. Why would he ever have to give that instruction unless men needed the reminder Why would he ever have to tell wives to submit to their husbands and to honor and show them respect unless they needed the reminder and instruction? Why would Peter have to give cautions about the pitfalls that exist in marriage uh, if that wasn't something that even Christian couples were susceptible to? So... On the one hand, we're looking at, we're trying to highlight the the good because we're trying to focus on what the design is in all of this. And yet at the same time, we don't want to try to minimize the fact that as good as what this design is, it is filled with breakdowns and trouble and turmoil because you've got a creation that's been cursed. You've got wayward hearts and warped minds and everything that we do is headed up under this need for redemption. But because Christ comes to redeem and reconciles all things to himself, even marriage itself can be reconciled and can be redeemed and can be built upon in a meaningful and lasting way. So, that being said, sex in its place. Let me give you um, a couple things to consider just to start off, and this is sort of more um, just putting down some markers uh, along the way to kind of give us a boundary line to work with. Uh, Number one, while one flesh, that that phrase in Genesis 2, 24, refers to more than just sex, it certainly isn't less than sex. You you catch that? In other words, there's a risk if you try to minimize what's being said there, if you try to limit it to only being about sex, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cling to his wife or be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If all you see in that statement is a statement about physical union, I think you undercut the significance of the passage. Ultimately, I think as you, as you go through, and one, that'll be one of the tasks that I have tonight, is to demonstrate that the physical act of sex, or the physical joining of man and woman, is itself more significant than just what the physical act is. There's there's more that's going on there than just a bodily function, all right? So, all that being said, it is significant to say that the two become one flesh. But all in all, within the broader context of Genesis 2, and the idea of leaving from family, home, and coming to this other person, it's a mark of identity, it's a mark of uh, an exclusive relationship, Um, it's a boundary that's been set up, all of which in some way is enacted or set up even through the act of sex, but sex is not the only thing that we talk about when we're talking about being one flesh. Uh, The idea is a harmony and a unity that exists between man and woman. Two passages worth considering, all right? Sex is important, it's part of the creation design, but it's, uh, it's not the most important thing. And there are a couple places I, I could pull more than these, I use more than these two, but let me give you these two just to sort of set a framework. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 1. And if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read the first four verses, and I will tie it into what we're talking about, even though it seems a little odd and random. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, Now King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servant said to him, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king, and let her attend the king and become his nurse, and let her lie in your bosom that my lord the king may keep warm." So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. And she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabitate with her. What in the world does this have to do with sex? Here's the point. David is a prime example of the fact that for all the good for all the enjoyment that may come with sex, it is limited in its time and in its scope, right? David is the quintessential Braveheart warrior poet, right? Everyone's seen Braveheart? So he's a man's man, at least this is the way we tend to think of David. He's a man's man who could go out and crack skulls, right? Do battle. And then he can also sit on the hillside with his woman and speak in Latin and French and woo and write poems and right? He doesn't bother going out to, to buy a car. He makes his own cards, all right? He is, his biggest sin, his biggest failure ultimately is in his sin with Bathsheba, sexual immorality, adultery. And so you get a picture of David as sort of this heartthrob as he's rising in the ranks, as he rises to the place of being king over Israel. But even David, for as manly and virile as what he is, by the time he gets to the end of his life, he now has this beautiful young woman who's being placed in bed with him for, for body heat, and he's so weak and so diminished in his manhood, in his personhood, that he, he doesn't do anything with her, right? The man, right? Mr. Romeo, is being put in bed with a beautiful woman and he, for all intents and purposes, he does not touch her, does not know her in any kind of a sexual way. Why? Because of the fact that through the aging process alone, sex is bound to be limited and is bound to lose its place or its function for finite human beings. That's at least one reminder of the fact that whatever we may want to make sex out to be in a marriage relationship, it is a warning that we cannot make it more important than what it is because ultimately it's not going to last, even in a good marriage. There comes a point in time where these things, our bodies start to break down and this will be one of the effects. Even sexual intimacy begins to change and differ as our bodies allow or as our bodies limit us. Another one. This is slightly different. If you go to Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman. It starts at verse 10. What is the what is the Proverbs 31 woman noted for? I mean several things. There's no one thing. But as you look in thirty-one ten through thirty-one, what are some of the things that she's cited for or commended for? Trust in her husband. Trust in her husband or his trust in her? Okay? Sorry? Noble character. character. She's industrious. industrious. Fear Fear of the Lord. Anything about physical beauty? Virtue, Virtue. okay? It's all, it's all internal. Yeah, to the extent that there's anything external being described, it's how she goes about working and laboring. By the way, I think that fits in well with the whole general notion that one of the primary designs in marriage is for marriage to be a working relationship. The Proverbs 31 is woman is being um, commended to us in no small part because of the role that she plays in working for her husband and her family. But as close as what we get to any kind of statement about, about physical attractiveness is down at the very end in verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain or beauty is empty but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. It's almost as if, from the perspective of Proverbs 31, you can find sex with any woman that's out there, but you can't necessarily find virtue and diligence and character with just any woman, right? I mean, there are plenty of passages, in other words, earlier in Proverbs where it warns, these young men who are growing up, the father is warning his son about the adulterous woman or about the woman who is uh, the uh, woman of harlotry or immorality, right? Are there sex out there to be fine anywhere? That's not one of the driving distinctives of this woman who's to be admired and held up as an example. It's not in her physical beauty or appearance. It's not in sexual attractiveness or sexual fulfillment or anything like that, the, the emphasis here is on character and fear of the Lord and how that drives her in working for her husband and for her family. So we say all that to say this. In both David's example of this sort of body that is withering away and is shrinking away, cannot do what he used to do anymore, we're reminded of the fact that even at our best we will not be able to maintain sexual activity the way that we once did, just simply because our bodies are gonna begin to break down. And number two, even if you're talking about the ability to enjoy your marriage partner in the years when you are physically capable of doing it, although, and and we'll look at this in a minute, although Scripture does promote sexual enjoyment and pleasure as a good thing, it takes it as a given that sex is not just simply for a child for childbearing, but is for is a marital blessing. Even so, there's a there's a very um, there's a very limited view of the value of sex in a marriage. The emphasis is more on the character of the individual rather than the physical goods, so to speak. Okay. This, by the way, this runs totally contrary to what you see in most pop culture today in terms of how sex is viewed or how it's presented. I mean, sex is presented in such a way that it is the thing that's going to drive and keep your marriage going. But it's, that story is always told, oddly enough, by 20 and 30-something-year-olds. <laughs> or... The woman that you have to chase after is, you know, this, you know, on a scale of one to 10, she's a 12, right? Every minute of, the, of every day, she doesn't have a single hair out of place, she never loses her figure, she, right? And that's not what men should be aspiring for either. So scripture comes and has a very different view of the good and of the limits that come with sex. Last point, and this sort of sums up at least these initial observations. Received as something good, and we need to emphasize received, it's something that's given to us, not something that we take. Received as something good, sex is a blessing. Pursued as an ultimate good, sex is an idol, and idols always disappoint. The perspective, the Christian perspective on the good of sex, of sexual intimacy and pleasure and all of that, is that it is something that God Himself created and worked into His creation design from the very beginning, that Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, were able to enjoy this, and that was what God intended to be for man and woman, for husband and wife. That is not why God created marriage to begin with. Well, I've got this sex act here, and how are we going to make the most out? We'll make marriage for sex. That's not what he does. Sex is made for marriage, not marriage for sex. Sex is a good thing. It is a blessing. It's something that can be enjoyed, but like any other blessing, finances, material goods, children, reputation, if we make that thing an ultimate good, we try, to, we try to find our meaning, our purpose, our satisfaction, our contentment in those things, we, we then have changed those things from being just a blessing or a gift to making it an idol that we serve, and an idol never ultimately leads us to what we hope it's going to provide, it always disappoints. And it's always going to disappoint when we talk about sex because both husband and wife are not these pristine, perfect individuals. There are any number of things that factor into a healthy, working relationship. Okay, we move on. The relational good of sex. And by this we mean, I'm, I'm going to differentiate here for a little bit, although there's some overlap, clearly. But I'm going to try to differentiate for a minute here the relational good of sex from the procreational good of sex. In other words, why is sex good just in terms of the marriage relationship, and then why is sex good when it comes to bearing children? What, what purpose does it have in that respect? Uh, the relational good ultimately takes priority over the procreational good is what I'm going to suggest, but... Let's walk through this first. Number one, the relational good of sex. It's good, sex is good, because it's the consummation of love and desire. And the S of S there is Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, if you want to jot that down. I had the book rather than uh, a specific reference because almost the entire book of uh, Song of Songs is very interesting if you go back and if you read it. Most of the book is of you know, uh, Mr. Romeo here, Mr. Solomon, whoever he is, and, you know, this attractive young lady. It's them trying to meet up and get together. It's, it's a longing, it's a desire, it's a, I saw him, I heard him, but then when I got there, he wasn't there anymore, so I ran out into the streets looking for him. I came, uh, this woman that I, that I love, that I want, she's like a garden locked up, I can't get to her right away. It's, it's this sort of, um, this tension that exists where there is an understood mutual desire on the part of the man and the woman to be together, and yet they seem to just be missing it with the possibility of maybe a couple of veiled references. But I think more often, uh, more to the point of Song of Songs, it's not so much about the actual act of sex as much as it is about just the goodness of love and desire with the assumption that sex is a natural outworking of that. In other words, the relational good of sex is that it caps off the love and the affection that exists between a man and a woman. It gives them something to act on for these feelings that they have inside. Do you you follow? Does that make sense? In other words, because of the fact that we have been created as embodied spirits, there's both a material and an immaterial part of us. The things that we experience in our immaterial nature, things like our emotions, our thoughts, our dreams, our desires, we, there is a part of us that wants to give expression to that either by the audible word or by a visible gesture or by a physical touch or something like that. There's something about the way that we've been created that what's on the inside we want to be able to express on the outside. When there exists between a man and a woman this mutual love and affection, such that they are uh, captured by the beauty or the handsomeness of the other. There's something about the personality or the tone of voice or, or something like that that's sort of drawing them together. They want something to be able to act on, to be able to capitalize on that attraction. In that sense then, one of the goods, the relational goods of sex, is that it is a physical way to act on the emotional attraction, the spiritual attraction that exists between man and woman. That's a good thing that God has done, okay? Uh, number two, it's a means of cultivating marriage. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to Proverbs chapter 5 and pick up at verse 15, Proverbs chapter five, verse 15. You can follow along for, uh, what do we have there? 15 through 20. You can follow along as I read. This is after um, one of the warnings that the father gives to his son about going after uh, an immoral woman and about the dangers that exist there. He follows that up with verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? You see, part of the Part of the instruction that's being given here seems to be, yes, most most clearly and most obviously, don't go after the immoral woman, especially if you're married because she's not your wife. Go to your wife, enjoy your wife. But the picture of going to the well, uh, the enjoyment of the springs, all of that is sort of drinking, refreshing. This is what you do. You invest in your marriage, presumably by even the act of sex itself. So the euphemism that's used here, even when it comes to talking about, uh, you know, dispersing your streams into the street, is a euphemism for a guy who basically goes out and looks to deposit his seed in any particular woman who would have him, and the father in Proverbs is saying, why would, you, why would you throw away, why would you waste yourself in all these empty pursuits? Stick to your, your garden, stick to your domain, stick to your household and drink and be nourished and cultivate what you have there. Make the investment there, not outside of the home. So I take it then in light of the fact that, you, that the contrast is between the sexually immoral woman... And then the right enjoyment of the wife, that one of the things that happens in the sexual action or the sexual act between husband and wife is sort of this watering, if you will, of the marriage relationship, that it's actually one of the ways that God enables us to care for and to cultivate the marriage that we have with our spouse. Number three, sex is is a relational good in marriage because it establishes covenantal ties and it promotes marital jealousy. It establishes covenantal ties and it promotes marital jealousy. Again, sticking with Proverbs, if you go over one chapter to Proverbs 6, verse 31, after another warning about an adulterous or an immoral woman, we come down to this statement in 631. Uh, Let me start actually at 630. Proverbs 630. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry, but when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. Why? Verse 34, for jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. The father is warning his son over the consequences, the danger of going after Another man's wife, an adulterous woman. In this latter part of the chapter, one of the things that he says is the consequences of that are these wounds to you, to your reputation that you receive. And the reason that you cannot escape those wounds, that damage, is because of the woman's husband he will not turn a blind eye to what it is that you've done with his wife. In other words, there is taken for granted the fact that a man who has been joined to his wife is going to have a, what we would say is, a right kind of marital jealousy. In the same way that God identifies himself with Israel when he enters into covenant with her, when he identifies himself as a jealous God, my name is Jealous, we know that in the, in the context of what God is saying, that that's not a, um, a very selfish, immature jealousy, but that's the kind of good and right jealousy that God has for his people. You are mine, and I want you, and I want you to want me so that we can enjoy one another. That kind of protective jealousy over a relationship that exists, especially in a covenant relationship, is a good thing. One of the things that happens then as a result of the sexual union between man and woman is that that is one of the very few things that a man and a woman, presumably, do together that is not duplicated in any other opposite-sex relationship. So, for example, I can uh, sit down and have a meal with my wife. In one sense, I could sit down and have a meal with any other woman. You know, if we had to, if there was a group of people meeting I'm not talking about one-on-one, understand. I don't probably need to edit that out of the audio. Uh, not saying we go out and, you know, have dinner with another one, but you know what I'm saying? The act of eating in and of itself is not the primary concern. It's what the, the eating may or may not represent or point to, but there really is no other way to get around the sexual act. There's no way in which the sexual act in and of itself can be sort of sterilized or be uh, thought of in any sort of uh, insignificant or generic sort of way. It is uniquely something that a man and a woman do. And because of that, it's one of the things that uniquely binds that woman to that man and that man to that woman, such that anyone else encroaching on that domain the marriage bed, so to speak, Hebrews 13, has now transgressed a very significant boundary. And everyone knows it. Everyone recognizes it. You may try to diminish it. You may try to shrug it off, but everyone knows it because of the significance of what's going on in the sexual union. Number four, sex is a relational good because it's also protection from immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to turn there. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities... Each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." Now it should be fairly straightforward. The, the simple point that Paul is making here is that yes, all things considered, and he'll go on to, to make his case a little bit further. In one sense, it would be, it'd be great if men and women could live singly in light of this new world that exists because of the, the work of Christ. On the other hand, because of the fact that we are embodied spirits, and we do have sexual desires and longings, Paul says it's far better if you have that to be able to act on it in a righteous, sanctioned way. That being said, one of the things that's interesting is that it seems like one of the problems that Paul is addressing here is the notion that some Corinthians have that because they're so spiritual, they don't need to get bogged down in these fleshly matters, Right? They're so spiritual that they've sort of risen above the need to worry about sexual intimacy with husband and wife. And Paul says, that is a foolish, foolish thing. Because of immorality, you have your wife, and because of immorality, you have your husband, meaning you have each other so that you can enjoy the pleasures of sex in a right way without going and enjoying them in the wrong way. Take advantage of that. In that respect then, for all that sex is meant to be in terms of a relational good, in terms of an expression of, uh, of love and affection, the binding element that it has between husband and wife, there is something to be said for a functional Role of sex in that it's a way to righteously enjoy pleasures that we desire as opposed to unrighteously seeking those pleasures. So it's a good thing, in other words, for a husband or for a wife to have sex with their spouse if only for, this, for the fact that that's what the spouse needs at this particular moment send him out to work, send him on a long trip, her on a long trip, her off to work, whatever it is. And I get everything that I need at home. Therefore, if any temptation comes my way, the, the weight, the brunt of that temptation is minimized, is lessened. Do you see? So the relational good of sex in that sense is that it staves off, not perfectly, but it staves off, temptation, and immorality. And then the last one that we'll put here, number five, the, uh, one of the relational goods of sex is that it's a source of rest and renewal in a marriage relationship. We go back to, again, sort of uh, one of the places that we started, which is Song of Songs. Uh, as you go through that book, another interesting feature is that one of the, um, the big images that are presented over and over and over again is the likening of the other, whether it's the man or the woman, or the likening of their experience together as some sort of fruitful tree, or shade, or a garden, or you you get this idea that it's when the two of them are together that there is sort of this satisfying, restful, rejuvenating effect that takes place when they're able to enjoy the love and affection that they share from one another. And I think we had mentioned in one of the weeks before, in that sense, there's sort of a a tantalizing way in which we might even consider sex to be something like the Sabbath of marriage. God gives us six days to work He gives a Sabbath day to his people so that they can take a break from their work, refocus, recharge, and then continue on with the task and with the assignments, with the calling that they have. In a similar way, sex functions like that. Sex is not the thing that we've been called to do every waking minute of every day. However, it is a very valuable and good way in which husband and wife can sort of set aside the weights, the pressures of life, they can enjoy one another privately away from the rest of the world and hopefully recharge their batteries so that they continue to work together hand in hand, okay? All right, we need to run through these last ones quickly. I'm going to just throw out, and this is going to make our transition to uh, what we take the next time we're back together, which is shifting our focus to Uh, sort of a biblical concept or perspectives on uh, on family, particularly in the way that um, that children factor into the the picture. Um, The procreational good of sex. The binding nature of sex, this is number one, the binding nature of sex promotes a stable environment for child rearing. Because one of the things that sexual um, intimacy does with a couple is that it creates a, a bonding of the couple uniquely, one that is not duplicated anywhere else, it cements their relationship together and adds to the health and the stability of that marriage relationship, which is crucial for the health and the development of any children who come into the picture as a result. Even for people who do not have a high view of marriage, Study after study, sociology, psychology, gives you know the evidence just for the, uh, the positive effects of a two-parent home, and or the negative effects of single parenting. Sometimes that has to be done, and it's, it's unfortunate, it's a sad thing, but the ideal is a two-parent home, and one of the goods that comes through sex is the binding of the, of the husband and wife together solidifies that relationship so that there can be a stable home life for the children to grow up in. Number two, <clears throat> because we create life in the midst of sexual union, marital love becomes the ground for parental love. And I'm a little, I'm a little iffy on that wording. I don't know if it, act, if it articulates what I'm after in exactly the right way. I'm, I'm wanting to get at the idea that marital love, love between a husband and wife, takes precedent or takes priority over a parent's love for the child or for the children. And one of the ways that that's exemplified in the way that God has designed sex is that it's through the the sexual activity, the sex act, and the enjoyment that husband and wife share in that act that life is created. So, the joy gives birth to no pun intended gives birth to additional life. It's not we create additional life so that we can find love for each other. It's the love that we have for each other then issues forth into new life. In one sense, this is probably the uh, the true model or pattern is the act of creation that God himself undergoes. We, we take it as a, as a given in light of what we see in Scripture that God has eternally existed, eternity past into eternity future, and that because he exists as one God in three persons, that he was always eternally satisfied and joyful in the fellowship that existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In that sense then, God did not need to create in order to satisfy some sort of lacking or deficiency that he had. If anything, the act of creating the universe and all that exists in it is an overflow of the enjoyment that exists in the Godhead and is a way for them then to be able to share or be able to pour out their love and enjoyment that they share with one another in image bearers who are then going to be able to, in some smaller way, tap into that. So God does not create us because he needs us. He doesn't need us at all but he's happy to create us so that we can share in the union that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In a very similar way, and I think in, a, in an imitable way, husband and wife, at the very best, do not create new life because they need to do that in order to find fulfillment, but they create new life just simply because they're enjoying one another. And then the addition of little Johnny or little Sally is an opportunity for that child, that new life and creature to share in the love, the joy, the affection that pre-existed them, right? Number three, because sex continues after a couple become parents, children are not to be viewed as the ultimate goal of marriage, if sex were only for the purpose of procreation, as soon as you had your number of children or your allotted total, you what? What are we at? What's the two point five? Or it's not that anymore. But you know, whatever the re- uh, replacement rate is, once you meet that, you're good. No need for sex anymore. That clearly is not the way that God has designed it. It's not the way that it works. Sexual intimacy and enjoyment continues even after little Johnny and little Sally come on the scene, which is another way of indicating or hinting at the fact that for as great a blessing as what children are, they're not the ultimate good in a marriage relationship. We're back again to the love that exists between husband and wife is meant to take precedent or priority over the reproductive love that comes in child parenthood. That enjoyment continues even after children come and after children go, which is an indication of the priority and the preeminence of the love relationship between husband and wife. So in that respect then, the way that God has designed the sexual relationship between man and woman sets up um, indicators about how procreation is meant to fit in or fit under this pre-existing relationship between husband and wife. It exists first and foremost sex for the husband and wife, but through that, it's the means by which we create additional life, but all of that life is a derivative or is a byproduct of the love that's first shared between husband and wife, and which should be, which should be maintained even after new lives and new little creatures are brought into this home environment, okay? So, very rough shot approach. This doesn't touch by any means on all that needs to be said, but it at least is sort of a broad stroke approach to the significance of, uh, of sex in a marriage relationship. The next time that we come back, we'll be shifting gears to uh, the biblical view on children and family. Uh, so we'll probably need to touch on everything from why, to, why having kids, uh, is having kids uh, mandatory, childlessness, adoption, all those kinds of things, um, but we'll leave that for when we have more time. Let me pray and we will be done. Father, thank you for this time. We ask that you would uh, help us to think long and hard about uh, the tremendous gift that sex is in the relationship between a husband and wife, Um, that there is uh, a relational, even a a physical good that comes out of it, the enjoyment that a husband and wife are able to share with each other, Um, the procreational good in our love and the expression of that love issuing forth in new life. Help us to do, as Paul says, whether we eat, drink, or whether we even have sex, to do all for the glory of God. Thank you that Christ has redeemed us and has reconciled uh, all that we are, even in our marriage relationships. May we live in such a way that we keep eternity in view, and it's in the name of Christ that we ask it. Amen.